Well, I'm going to ask you to grab your Bibles and turn uh, to the book of Acts again this morning as we are in a series that we've entitled Unstoppable. And we find ourselves in Acts uh, 21 this morning. We have been studying through the second part of this uh, book of Acts under the heading Unstoppable, seeing God's unstoppable work, not only in the people that were impacted by the gospel as followers of Jesus Christ, but also the unstoppable work of Jesus Christ and the gospel throughout the world. And we've been seeing that most especially in Paul and his companions' journeys throughout Macedonia and Asia as he proclaimed and, and preached Christ to a lost world. And we see how people are coming to know Jesus and they're establishing churches and churches are now getting involved and, and moving and changing, uh, the culture and the people around them. And we come to Acts chapter 21 and we come to what is a difficult passage of scripture, a passage that has a lot of different implications and based on the direction that we understand and study the text before us will uh, allow us to have all kinds of assumptions along the way. I'll tell you this morning that probably the longest time it took me to put together an outline for a sermon happened this week. I sat for numerous times and moments scratching out a sheet of paper, pulling it out of the notepad and starting all over again, but I have confidence this morning that where I've mapped us out to go with this difficult passage of scripture is a place that will help us all to find great application and truth with regards to God and his word. And so this morning, we're going to look through this passage and we're going to see a lot of different things taking place and we're going to have a lot of different questions because it seems as if there's contradictory plans or wills of God. The people of God seem to have one idea, Paul seems to have a completely different idea and both stand behind this idea that the spirit of almighty God is leading and guiding them to say or to do what they're saying or doing. The problem is one's going one way and one's going another. And so how are we as the people of God here in the 21st century when we hear multiple voices about what we believe to be the will and plan of God in our lives how are we to go about knowing that we're listening to the will of God and to the voice of God and how are we to know if what we are doing is in fact a part of his plans and purposes and this morning that is our goal so let me ask God's blessing on our time and we'll jump into our text Father God we do come before you and first of all Lord as a nation we We grieve over um, the great sin of abortion and the great sin of the disposal of human life, both at the beginning and the end of life, Lord. And I pray that we as a people, we as a church, would, would be people who would stand for the dignity of life, that we would recognize as we're learning in our theology uh, class on Sunday nights, the great uh, image bearers that we are of you. Unlike anything else in all of creation, human beings alone share your image and your dignity that you've implanted into every human being. And so, Lord, I pray that that would revolutionize the way that we interact with one another. Lord, that we would speak out against this great injustice, and we would do all that we can to seek that once and for all it would not take place again. We pray for our legislatures, Lord. We pray for our politicians who have the job of establishing laws, and Lord, that they would recognize what they are doing when they allow decisions like that which was allowed this week in New York to take place. The barbarism, Lord, with a, with a face of choice in front of it. Lord, we ask that you would, uh, Lord, you would free us of this. Lord, we ask as a collective body of believers that you would forgive us of this great sin and that you would show us that that life is what you have called it to be and that is all that it is worth living and so that we would give every opportunity for life to take place. Now, Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, I ask that you would speak to us this morning. Lord, each of us have different things that we're wondering what your good will and purpose for our lives is. For some, it involves a job. For others, it involves a a seeking out, a mate. To others, it's an education decision. Maybe it's how to parent, Lord. Uh, We have myriads of questions as to where you want us to go and what you want us to do. And this passage seems to bring even more questions and not many answers. So, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us in a powerful way this morning. 
and that you would use me to guide this congregation in that way. We love you, and we give you the glory for it all. In Christ's name we pray, amen and amen. What do Polycarp, John Patton, Jim Elliott, John Choi, and Christians in this place have in common? Well, 2,000 years spans our existence with regards to each of these different individuals. And yet, while time and place, because we come from all different places than these men that were just named, we have far more in common than we would realize. The number one thing that we have, that they have, is we have the Holy Spirit living in us And the promises of God given in his word that he will be with us and he will never leave us or forsake us. But one thing that separates us is the confidence that no matter how difficult the calling God has for us or how dire the circumstances of life are around us, that obeying and doing God's word without fear is so immensely glorious. You see, for so many of us this morning, what separates us from those four men, which I'll talk about in a moment, what separates us from them is not what we have at our disposal, but our faith that God might be calling us to a risky and even in the world's view, a crazy life to pursue him and his gospel no matter the circumstances that come along the way. Are we really, as sometimes we sing, willing to give up everything that we have? In the great uh, hymn of the faith, Martin Luther says, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, Christ's truth abideth still. Do you believe that this morning? Do I believe that this morning? That as long as I have Jesus, as long as I have the gospel, that is all that I need. And am I willing, in light of that truth, and in light of that declaration, to be willing to sacrifice if the Lord wills, and to give it all up for the sake of his gospel? Well, these four men prove to us that it's possible. Polycarp. Polycarp was a first century uh, follower of John. He would follow John and be the primary disciple of the Apostle John. He would be the first church father outside of the apostolic age. And after John would die, he would go on leading the church. And he was arrested as an 86-year-old man. His crime for saying that there was only one king in the Roman Empire, and that king was not Caesar, but Christ. He was then brought before the Colosseum in Rome, and his executioners said, you have one chance, renounce Christ, and you will live. If not, we are preparing to burn you at the stake. They begged him, old man, renounce Christ, even if you would just whisper it into our ears. And this is what Polycarp said. Eighty-six years have I served Christ, nor has he ever done me any harm. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? I bless thee for deigning me worthy of this day and this hour that I may be among thy martyrs and drink the cup of my Lord Jesus Christ. He would be then placed on a pillar, tied to the post, and fire would begin to rage. And because it would not consume his body, they would stab him and his blood would pour out for the sake of Christ. Do you have that kind of confidence this morning? Well, let's move on. And you say, well, of course, those guys closer to Jesus would have gotten it. How about John Patton? John Patton was a man born in Britain who 14 days as a young man after his wedding in 1858 would take his wife and head to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. 
He would go to these islands because it was known that they were to be inhabited by vicious cannibals who needed the gospel. He went against the compelling of many. And in fact, the last Sunday that him and his wife were in their home church in Britain, one of the elder statesmen of the church pleaded with him not to go. He pleaded with them that it was foolhardiness on John and his wife's mind to go to such a remote place knowing that impending doom was to take place. And then he said, why would you go to a place where you run the risk of being eaten by cannibals? John Patton said the following. He said, if I die here in Glasgow, this is what he's saying to the elder statesman. If I die here in Glasgow, I shall be eaten by worms. If I can but live and die serving the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. For in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Wow. Faced with the doom of a cannibal tribe, he would leave with no guarantee of what was before him. Do you and I have the faith of John Patton? Let's move on. Closer to home, Jim Elliott, a college student who would graduate from Wheaton College with a zeal to reach the lost people groups in Ecuador. He would go there with a team of other young men seeking to reach a particular group known for their great hostility, the Aka Indians. And as he would spend time prepping for their initial encounter with the Indians, by seeking to show them that they were peace-loving men, desiring to be a blessing and not a curse to them. After a long process of time, it was time to make human contact. And as a result of him trying to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ <clears throat> to that lost world, he and members of his team would be killed. And you got to wonder... A group of young men with young families and young brides who had such a cozy and comfortable life here in suburban Chicago and other places in the United States. Why would they endeavor to pursue such a foolhardy decision? This is what Jim Elliott tells us today. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Do we have the faith and the confidence of a Jim Elliot? Let's get even closer to the days that we live in today. John Chow. John Chow, just a couple months ago, was 27 years of age. A graduate of Oral Roberts University in Tulsa. A man since early days of high school who had learned in school about a group of individuals living on an island in the remote parts of the Indian Ocean who had zero contact with the outside world. He began to learn about these people and he began to have his heart break as he recognized if they are not in contact with the world then they are not in contact with the full level of the gospel of Jesus Christ and without the gospel of Jesus Christ these unreached people group are on their way to hell after spending years of praying and learning he would embark on a journey only with the clothes on his back in a Bible in his hands. And while announcing upon his arrival to the Sentinelese people, his announcement was only, Jesus loves you, and I do too. He would be killed right away with an arrow. His body would be taken by the Sentinelese people and eaten, and his remains left or buried. Why in the world... Would a young man at 27 years of age do something so crazy and from the world's standards so stupid? This is what he said. 
written in his journal to his mom and dad, he wrote the following. You guys might think I'm crazy in all this, but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. Enter the Apostle Paul in Acts 21. The Apostle Paul, for some time now, has believed that God has clearly called him to go to Jerusalem. His family, his friends, his companions, even Luke himself, who wrote the book of Acts, says, Don't do it. This is craziness. This is absurdity. Why would you go there? Jerusalem only means pain and sorrow. But what we learn today is not the foolishness of the Apostle Paul. Nor do I want you, because human speaking right now, human wisdom is telling you, well, they could have done so much more had they been a little wiser this last time, this last year. With regards to the young man Chow and his decision, he was torched through social media and news outlets. What a foolish, foolish man. But one blog writer put it this way. He said, the scandalous message of the Bible is that Jesus intentionally laid down his life for his people. If this is true, and if John Chow went on his mission to proclaim the good news, then how much more of a friend is he than some arrogant fool? In fact, if the good news about Jesus is true, then all of us as Christians like Chow best show love by risking everything to tell the world. You see, there's many in our world, and even some Christians today, who will say under their breath, to risk something like that for the gospel or for the world is foolishness, vanity, short-sightedness, ill-timed and ill-placed hubris. No, God sees all of these men, and anyone who's willing to take a risk for him and for the gospel is gloriously faithful. What we must recognize, while we are warm and safe in our comfortable middle class lives, or whether we are under constant attack for the gospel's sake is this truth. The cause of the gospel is worth it. John Piper said this, there are things vastly worse than death. Wasting your life is worse than losing it. Wasting your life is worse than losing it. Why do I tell you all of this? Number one, to remind you that God is still in the business of calling Christians to do great things, crazy things, absurd things, audacious things for Him and His gospel. Let us never grow too comfortable that we look at the book of Acts and look to the martyrs and missionaries of our lives and say, well, they had something I didn't have. Not too long ago, we had our friends, Ben and Missy Hatton, at our home. And the more time I spent with them, the more convicted I got because I became to, to recognize that my friend is not a super saint. Ben, like me, is an ordinary man trying to raise a family. He's an ordinary man with his own temptations and his own struggles and his own issues, just like me. But what Ben has done and what I have to learn is that God takes ordinary, broken down people and he calls them to massive steps of faith. You see, when I put my friend Ben on a pedestal, then it's easy for me to say that he took his family and his young family and children with him to go to the other part of the world, to New Guinea, to live in a jungle with people he's never met before, who he doesn't know their language, and devote his life to giving uh, to them and learning from them and growing with them so that one day, one day, gloriously in the future, he might have the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And our stories of our missionaries tell us that over and over and over again. And what we do is we prop them up and we say, they must have something different. 
different than we do. No, they don't. They have the same Holy Spirit. They have the same salvation in Christ. And what we begin to do is we begin to say, yes, them, but not me. Brothers and sisters, let us never forget that God has called all of us to go into the world to make disciples of all nations. And we need to be ready for wherever and whenever and to whomever that gospel call that God has for us needs to go. Second, these men all sought the will of God so that they might order their life and even their deaths in accordance to His will. These men believed that they had been called by God, directed by God, guided by God to do these audacious and amazing things that to a watching world seemed like foolishness and craziness. But they sought the Lord and they listened to the Spirit's leading and they sought wisdom from others and they got mixed reviews, right? Some said, yes, follow God. And others said, you've got to be kidding. God doesn't call people to things like that anymore. And they listened and they prayed and they followed the will of God. How much more then ought we be seeking the will of God in our lives? Surely in our mundane events of our quiet lives that seeking God on things like our education and our professional lives and where we live and, and how we go about choosing a spouse and how we go about parenting our children and how we go about making decisions both financial and, and from a calendar standpoint should be a part of the very fabric of who we are as Christians. And how sad is it that even in the mundane events of life, while these men and their families prove to us that God still speaks and still calls, the very few of us this week ever dedicated any time to ask the question, God, what would you have of me in this? God, what would you want for this day for me? Where do you want me to go? Who do you want me to talk to? How do you want me to invest my time, my money, my treasure, my dreams? God, where do you want me? So we come to Acts 21. A passage of scripture that reminds us that God is still speaking and God still is calling people to huge steps of faith amidst great trouble along the way. Let's look at the text, and I want to draw four conclusions from this text and help us that we might be able to live differently after we leave this place as a result. Here's what the text says. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 21, you can find this passage on page 930 in your pew Bible, page 930. It says, And when they departed from them, they set sail. And we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there was a ship there that was to unload its cargo. And we having sought out disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and, re and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, the P is silent by the way, and we, grant, uh, we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist. You remember Philip from earlier in the text? One of the disciples from, I'm sorry, one of the de uh, deacons if you will, the seven that are chosen in Acts chapter 6, he's back. And he invites Paul into his house. And we learn that Philip has uh, some daughters, four unmarried daughters, who prophesied. While we were staying there for many days, a prophet named Agabus 
came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When he heard this, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Does that sound like the four men we just talked about? And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. There's a lot in this text. You may say it's just a travel log. Well, it's one significant travel log. And with it, I want to look under four headings this morning about what it means to do the will of God without fear. How do we do it? Well, number one, we need to understand the context of the passage. What in the world is going on? Well, right away, we need to recognize Acts 21 opens with Paul finishing up his tearful and sorrowful goodbye and farewell to the Ephesian elders. He has met with them. He has given them words of how they are to lead and guide the church, what they are to be careful of. He gives a report on how he has sought to serve the Lord with humility and love for not only the Lord and his gospel, but for the people around him. And as a result of that, he gets on his ship. And he heads for where he believes God is calling him to go, and that is to the city of Jerusalem. Now, there's a couple reasons why. Number one, to proclaim Christ to his kinsmen, the Jewish individuals still under the law. Number two, to give to the Jerusalem church a gift that was collected by all these Gentile churches that Paul had started and and seen grow. They had taken a collection to take care of and to relieve The Jewish people that were followers of Christ during a time of great famine in Jerusalem. And in this context, we see some things. And I want you to notice three things very quickly. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But number one, I want you to notice that our text is full of goodbyes and greetings. It is filled with goodbyes and greetings. And when you read the text, what you will inevitably will come to is, well, that's great. He saw some people. They said hello. They said goodbye. They moved on. But I want you to notice that within these goodbyes and greetings are a couple of things. Number one. In the goodbyes and greetings are sorrowful, heartfelt expressions of love. These are not uh, just um, uh, passing acquaintances. They loved one another. That when Paul left and got on his boat, they took their wives and their children and they all saw him go. Years ago, my grandparents, who were from Iraq, made the decision in their elderly years to go and live in Northern California, where they wouldn't have to experience what we're experiencing today. And they would go and they would live nearby my uh, my dad's older sister. And that's where they would inevitably uh, live out their days on earth. And I remember because it was such an important day, we all traveled, this is before 9-11, to the airport. And then we all went and we traveled to the concourse and into the terminal. And we went to their gate and and we gave hugs and kisses and there was all kinds of emotion. And then we pasted our faces against the the window of the, of the the glass of the window looking out at the plane as it traveled away. And one of the few times I ever remember seeing my dad cry was in the car when he looked at my mom and he said, I don't know if I'll ever see them again. And tears in his eyes began to well up. Why? Why did we do all that? Because we loved my grandma and my grandpa. Because they meant the world to us. And this is a reminder through all these goodbyes and and these greetings. That the Christian life is not to be lived in isolation. I was struck by this truth. That Jesus saw fit to live life around 12 other people. And if Jesus saw fit to do that as the God of the universe, how much more do we need a group of individuals around us who will love us and and care for us and minister to us and, and help us as ones who are not the God of the universe? 
And yet the world says we don't need it. In a recent message, Pope Francis said that his great fear of the children of today is that they will have no need of relationships and that they will believe that the relationships that they are experiencing through technology are real and true relationships. And he said, put those things down. Stop living the lie that those are substitutes for real heart-to-heart and hand-to-hand relationships. We live in a world that says relationships aren't important. And the Christian life tells us, it screams to us, as the book of Acts does, that we need one another. So let me ask you, who did you greet this morning with a hug? Who did you greet this morning with great love and affection? It's good to see you. Who would you want to see before they left? Concerned that you would never see them again. If there aren't a list of people in this local church and you're able to do it, number one, we have failed you miserably because we've allowed you to sit and come and go without connecting in community. And that's my fault as your pastor. But might you carry some of the burden as well that you have begun to believe the lie that being a Lone Ranger Christian is okay when the Scripture tells you again and again it is not. Notice the greetings and the goodbyes. Number two, notice the groups. Paul would go from city to city and it says that he would seek out Verse 4, and having sought out the disciples, that word sought, he's looking intently for them. He wants to find them. He knows if anybody had a reason to go it alone, it was Paul. He had a clear calling from God. He had a clear prophecy on his life. And he could have said, I don't need people. They get in the way. But every city that he would come into, it was imperative that he find someone who lives under the banner of Jesus Christ. And it's so odd to me that again, if the Apostle Paul saw the importance of groups, why in the world in our 21st century, with all of our struggles and all of our pains and all of our issues and all of the calamity around us, why would we even have to advertise as a church small groups? And to be a part of it, it's a no-brainer. Every Christian should be seeking out small groups and, and being a part of it because, again, to live this life isn't worth it alone. God has called us to live it in community with people. And notice who the people are. It's not just anybody. He didn't walk into cheers. That was a joke. You should have laughed. He sought out disciples. People living under the banner of Christ. Number three we see in this text, guidance. There's all kinds of guidance happening here. Paul is compelled by the Spirit. The Spirit is guiding. And then we've got these Words of people guiding. Paul, don't go there. Don't do this. There's got to be another way. Don't go to Jerusalem. And then we give just a, a verse, and we don't know why Luke does it, but he says, man, remember good old Philip? He's an evangelist now. And by the way, he's got four unmarried daughters, and they prophesy. And then we've got Agabus, this guy who takes a belt and stands up in the gathering of people. And you just notice if this was in your small group, a guy gets up, takes someone else's belt off of them, and starts binding himself, hog-tying himself in the middle of the living room. And then says, and by the way, the wearer of this belt, some bad things are going to happen to you. A great night at small group. Hope the neighbors weren't looking in the windows when this was going on. Again, that was a joke. You guys here? Everything Okay. All kinds of prophecy going on. Well, as we look at prophecy, we got to recognize something. Because right away we say, well, that doesn't happen in my church experience. That doesn't happen in my small groups. I don't have that kind of stuff going on. People aren't saying, well, God told me to tell you this. Wait a minute. I've heard that a lot. I heard one pastor say, don't ever tell me that God told you something because then I got nothing. Because if God told you, then why are you talking to me? It's set. It's done. Signed, sealed, and delivered. So what are we to do with this guidance? Well, number one, I want you to know, nowhere in the Scriptures does it say that prophecy isn't a part of our church life today like it was then. 
especially the prophetic messages that these people were prophesying to Paul. I want you to know there are two different types of prophetic messages. Number one has to do with doctrine. And the prophetic message of doctrine has to do with the Word of God. Listen, if anybody ever comes to you and has a prophetic message about a new doctrine or a new scripture... You need to turn, tell them there's no new scripture, we've got the scriptures, and it's the Bible. And that rules out people like Joseph Smith and the Mormon faith. That's what he said. He said, hey, I got a new message from God. And the new message from God is, I want to tell you about this new idea about Jesus and what he did and what he expects from us and all of that. That is out of bounds. That's heretical. We've got the scriptures. But that's not what these people are doing. And what we see in our church today, it's something that should be a part of our church today, is prophecy that has to do with direction, not doctrine. These guys are speaking to Paul and they're saying, listen Paul, we're concerned about the decision you're making and we feel compelled by the Spirit to tell you, be careful. Well, that should be going on all the time. That should be happening when we gather outside of church uh, after the service. That should be happening when we are gathering in uh, small groups together. Why? Because we care about one another. And if we are in tune with the Spirit of God, that that vertical relationship will no doubt have horizontal, horizontal, horizontal manifestations to it. So we see greetings and goodbyes, groups and guidance. We've got to move on. There's a problem. There's confusion with this plan. Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem. The people all around him who love him and care for him say, don't do it. Now here's the problem. Paul says, I've heard from God. The people say, I've heard from God. We've got a problem. Either God speaks out of both sides of his mouth, or what the people are hearing, or what Paul is hearing, is wrong. Well, here's what compounds the confusion even more. Number one, an unknown future. Notice verse 22 of Acts 20. Acts 20, verse 22. Paul says the following. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, meaning God's compelling me to do this, not knowing what will happen to me there. How many of us are wondering about the will of God, and God doesn't seem to be answering, but he's leading us in a direction, but he doesn't tell us how that plan or that course is going to go. Many of us married individuals, and we believed God compelled us to do that. But we had no idea what was going to happen. We had no idea what was going to come. Many of us felt compelled to start families, not knowing what our children were going to do or what was going to go on with our lives. Many of us have achieved or, or pursued job offers and believe God has compelled us to do that, not knowing if that job is the right decision or not. I will tell you, my greatest fear and anxiety was I felt compelled to be the preacher at Village Bible Church, but I was scared to death because it was unknown. This could be the shortest pastorate in the, in the history of man. And so we don't want to do it. Many of us want to do what we used to do back in the day. We had these books that we would read called Choose Your Own Adventure. And you would read, and at the end of the page it would say, Okay, stop. Do you want Billy to go to the ice cream shop and enjoy the dreams of a lifetime in a banana split from the sky? Or do you want Billy to, as he's heading to the ice cream shop, get hit by a bus and die a fearful and gruesome death? Um, I want the banana split in the sky. You see, a lot of us will take steps of faith if God proves to us over and over again everything's going to go fine with us. That's what I choose, God. But God wasn't giving that. In fact, God was giving something else. Notice what he gave was unsettling advice. Unsettling advice. Three times in our text we see people close to him tell him not to go. These are wise people. These are godly people. These are spiritual people. And in fact, we are told even Luke, the writer of this book, says, I was a part of it. We, me, as well as the group said, don't do it. We tried to persuade Paul, but because he wouldn't be persuaded, we just said the Lord's will be done. What do you do when God's calling you to something and everybody around you says, what are you thinking? This is, this is the dumbest decision you could have. Can I tell you that one of my closest friends here at the church, 
that I loved. Amanda and I spent time with him and his wife, and, and we were two peas in a pod. I remember I went to him, we, we had lunch and, and talked about the possibility of me becoming a pastor, and I shared it with passion, with tears welling up in my eyes. I believe God's calling this to, it, to this. And you know what he said? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. The church would be idiotic to do such a stupid thing. Well, wait a minute. I like you, but I don't like what you're saying. And then you get in the car and you're like, maybe I'm missing it. Let me, let me double down on that. The day that the elder team announced that my uh, candidacy for the pastorate here at Village Bible Church, that man got up, he was sitting right over there, he got up and he says, this is foolishness. He went like this in the public service and he walked out never to come back to church again. You think that had some weight on me? You better believe it. He's a godly man. What in the world am I to do with that? And then to make the problem even worse, we've got an unshakable calling. When Paul talks about going to Jerusalem, he uses words like compelled, constrained, led. The Lord's leading me. This is not some idea that he's going to do something for a little time. He knows, God, you are propelling me in this direction. And if I don't do it, I'm going to be disobedient. If I don't do it, I'm going to miss the best that you have for me. And so what do we do when our future is unknown? What do we do when everybody tells us that we're losing our mind in the process? What do we do when we have an unshakable calling that says, I know that God is pointing me in this direction. Where are we to go? What are we to do? We need clarity. We need clarity. Clarity to address a problem like this, because you're probably facing it right now. Where do I go to school? Do I say yes to this person that keeps courting me? Do I serve in the capacity that I'm being asked to? A step of faith. Well, what about this and what about that? People are saying one thing. God's saying another. What do I do? I want you to notice a couple things. Number one, spirit-directed people can see things differently. You need to understand in this text that this text is telling us that godly people can see things on one particular issue on two very different in two very different ways. Now this isn't the first time it's happened. Paul and Barnabas saw things differently. Paul and Barnabas and the church in Jerusalem saw things differently in Acts 15. Paul will see things differently when he gets to Jerusalem and he talks with James, another apostle. I'm telling you right now, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you recognize that spirit-directed people are going to see things differently from time to time. And what scholars try to do with this text is try to say that the people were wrong or Paul was wrong. In fact, one of my favorite commentaries uh, and scholars that writes for the book of Acts <clears throat> says this, Paul is being obstinate, proud, and arrogant for not listening to his brothers in Christ and to his own demise. Whoa. I don't think so. I respect that guy a lot. But what I see is I see a group of Christians trying to know and understand the will of God, which at times is difficult. And we at times sense that God is calling us. So recognize, just because Christians disagree on things, it's going to happen. That's why it's okay for a church to disagree on things and why we need to talk through things because Christians are going to see things differently from time to time. Number two, spirit-led decisions sometimes lead to suffering. So you've made a decision. You've made a decision and you believe God called you to a decision. And let's just take some scenarios here. You've made a decision to go to a certain school. And you're all excited, God has led me to this school. And I'm going to be there. And, and when you get there, from day one, everything falls apart. The teachers hate your guts. You don't find any friends on the campus. Uh, the major that you were wanting to pursue, now you're finding out you, you don't want to be a part of that uh, for school, let alone the rest of your life. And what you do is you say, listen, there's a whole lot of bad here. I must have made a wrong decision. 
Or maybe you prayed and you got married and you pursued a, another follower in Jesus Christ and, 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 and everything looked great in your dating and your engagement time and you got married and problems came and, and trials came and tribulation came and, and the devil comes and says, see, you made the wrong decision. But here's the difference. You can change schools, but God's word says you can't change marriages. And so whispers begin to come in. You missed your true love. You missed the one you could have had. Just because suffering comes doesn't mean God's not in it. God's calling in my own life as the pastor of this church was just as true in the good times as it is the bad. Because sometimes God's going to call us to suffer, and we need to recognize that. And we don't need to look back and say, God, I must have missed your will in that. No, Paul recognized, I'm going to Jerusalem, and Agabus says, but you are going to be bound, and you're going to be in prison, and all kinds of pain and sorrow is going to come your way. And in those moments, Paul needs to recognize, God, you're still in it. This wasn't a mistake. This wasn't a problem. You're there. And here's why we can have confidence, because spirit-empowered Christians will be shown the way will be shown the way. Paul was guided every step of the way to Jerusalem. He was given all that he needed, and so are we. Scripture tells us God will never leave us nor forsake us. If we lack wisdom, James 1.5 says we should ask God who gives it uh, to all of us without finding fault. So you got a big decision in front of you? As you step out in faith, you're not sure you're doing the right thing? That's okay. God's with you. And if there needs to be some course correction, be humble, be open-handed, and God will direct your paths. We need to recognize that we don't need to live in paralyzing fear that God may be calling us to do some radical thing and wonder when things don't go the way they do whether God left us along the way. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Paul could go to Jerusalem knowing God is with me. And if God is with me, the nothing that he does not want to have happened to me can. And that's true for us as well. So what are we to do? What are we to do? We need to recognize one final thing, is that is we need to come to some conclusions. So we've got this issue, we've got this thing, and people are telling us one thing, and God's telling us another. How are we to go about making decisions? How did Paul get to a place where he could make decisions with regards to going to Jerusalem? There are four things I'll close with. Number one, number one is to hold confidently to the Word of God. Paul was holding on to something, and he'll allude to it when he gets to um, Acts 21 in Jerusalem where he will say, I heard a message from God, number one, on the road to Damascus, and number two, I was prophesied to by a man named Ananias, who told me this was my lot in life, and I believed it, and I've remained faithful to it, but God has led me along the ways. It's as if what Paul is saying is what he's telling us today. Follow the word of God. Be led by the word of God. The psalmist told us this, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So how do I know if I'm doing God's will for my life? Well, I take this book and I allow it to lead me and guide me and show me where I need to go. And as I meditate on it, as I read it and see the examples of God leading other people, I will be directed in the way I need to go. You don't know what God's calling you to? You don't know what it means to do the will of God? Start with Scripture, because I'll tell you what, when God's Word says don't do something, you'll know right away that's not in His will. And so that rules out half of your decisions, right? It's never, my, it's never God's will. Listen, I'll be real real with you. It's never God's will for me to go and flirt with another lady. Not God's will. Not good for my health either, but not God's will. Okay? So I can rule that out. It's not God's will that I live in immorality. It's not God's will that I be a gossip. It's not God's will that I uh, live in hatred and sin. It's not God's will for that. So that rules all that out. So it makes half of my decisions a whole lot easier. Number two, we need to pray continually in the Spirit. Paul had a robust prayer life, and we need to as well. And our prayer life can't be, Lord, take care of this, and Lord, take care of that. What our prayer life needs to be is, Lord, lead me today. Lord, guide me today. 
Lord, open my eyes to the opportunities around me. Lord, show me where your heart is beating most in the area that I have around me. Make me cognizant of the world around me. That I might not live for myself, that I might live for you. Those are the types of prayers when we're seeking the will of God that we need to have. Number three, and this is really important, listen closely and carefully to the people of God. The Bible says wisdom is found in the multiplicity of counselors. That is true. You got a question about what you should do in life, who to marry, where to go, where to move, what job to take. Ask lots of people that you trust that have lived trustworthy lives. But when they share, you need to recognize that what they're sharing isn't the word of God. That's why the Bible says that there are spirits that we can listen to, but we need to test the spirits. Listen, I could tell my mom, listen, we're going to move the family out west. We're not, by the way. But we're moving the family out west. And my mom, who loves the Lord, you know what I would hear her say? I just don't think it's God's will that you do that. Well, why would mom say that? Because she, she'd be okay with me moving, but not the grandbabies, not the grandkids. No, no, no. A lot of times we say things as Christians that we think is from God, and it's really just desires of our own. And we've got to navigate those and flesh those things out. And number four, and I've got to close. We need to live courageously for the gospel of God. I began this sermon speaking of men who risked much. And our text shows us that Paul who risked much for the gospel. So let me ask you, before you put everything away, let me ask you an all-important question. What are you willing to risk for Christ and his gospel? How much are you willing to spend on the gospel that changed you? How much are you willing to dedicate your life to in the service of the one who gave it all and risked it all on the cross of Calvary. Let us be a people, and let us be a church who long to go out on a limb for God, knowing that he will always reward faithfulness. And church, never forget that when we step out in faith, just as Peter would learn when he stepped out of the boat, Jesus was there with him. And Jesus will be with us as Jesus was with those four missionaries and martyrs. And as Jesus was with Paul when he entered into Jerusalem, Jesus is with us. And when Jesus is with us, brothers and sisters, we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus.